Hey, this is Jamie from Stillmeyer Games, and today I'm going to talk about waning decision spaces, which is not something that I normally think about in games. Normally, I I've talked. I think I have a video about games where your decision space expands as you play, like you're building out a town and you have more action spaces to use during the game. But I was recently invited to join the Decision Space podcast hosted by my friend Jake, disc golf friend Jake, and um, and his co-host Brendan. And I will link to that podcast in the comments below or in the, in the description below so you can see what we talked about there. Uh, but it really got me thinking that this is a, a really interesting decision space in games where there, there are certain games where your decisions actually become narrow. You have fewer decisions late in the game and that, that actually isn't a bad thing. And one of the reasons that I realized it wasn't a bad thing is that many Stillmeyer games do this. I didn't even realize it, but many Stillmeyer games do this. I'll talk about that in a second. Just a quick overview of, of this concept, though. Um, I'll, I'll phrase it as I didn't, did in the description. Games with waning decision spaces are those where your choices become tighter or fewer as the game advances, which can add tension, a sense of completion. It can create obvious choices, for better or worse, and reduce analysis paralysis, which, which I generally perceived to be a good thing. Analysis paralysis is when you are stuck on your turn, you can't make the decision, and you need the game to maybe help you out to make that decision a little bit. So real quick, I'm going to recap uh, Jake and Brendan's top five. Then I'll go into some honorable mentions for myself, Stillmeyer Games, and then my top ten. Jake's top five are, are Underwater Cities, Hey That's My Fish, which is a neat example because in Hey That's My Fish, you're, you're, you start out in the game with a lot of stuff on, on, the, on the table, all these different tiles, and you're removing those tiles as you play. Number three, Anno 1800. Number two, Five Tribes, another game where the board is populated with a bunch of stuff at the beginning of the game, and by the end of the game, a lot of those uh, workers have been pulled off the board. And then at number one is Codenames. I'll talk about Codenames a little bit later on my list because I thought that was a fantastic pick. Brendan's top five is Palaces of Carrera, Calico. Calico is a game where that gets very, very tight near the end of the game. I think for the worse rather than for the better, but it is an adorable theme. It's a game that I really wanted to like, but... But uh, it, it's an odd game where uh, the agony coming from this waning decision space didn't translate into cleverness or fun for me. Um, I don't want to speak poorly about it, but I, I, I want to mention this because I think a waning decision space isn't inherently, isn't inherently a good thing. Where if you present players a lot of freedom at the beginning of the game, and then by the end of the game it's so tight and they're not able to accomplish a lot of the goals that they thought they were going to complete, I think that could be a bad thing. Uh, Patchwork, I'll talk about that a little bit later. Welcome to, and number one, Babylonia, which is a game that I haven't played, but Brendan speaks very highly of it. My honorable mentions are Seven Wonders, Rumble Nation, Clank, Space Space, and Concordia. For various reasons, these games have waning decision spaces, whether they are over the course of the game or in the case of Concordia, it's over the course of... Um, a, multi, a series of turns for you as you're in Concordia, you have a hand of cards and you play those cards and they, re they are removed from your hand. And then at a certain point, you have to say, okay, I'm going to play the card that retrieves all those cards that I've played back to my hand. So every time you play a card for your next turn, you have fewer choices to choose from among the cards in your hand. Um, and then Stillmeyer games. Let's get to these because it really surprised me how many of our games have waning decision spaces. Uh, the first one is Rolling Realms. So in Rolling Realms, you have three realms. Here's all the realms so far, but you have three realms that you are playing with. And they each start off with uh, completely like blank or available. You can do anything with these realms. But as you play, like Libertalia is a great example here. As you play in the Libertalia realm, so if I filled in a bunch of the numbers on this realm, late in the round, it's very tight then. I only have a few spaces where I can place numbers there. So my decision space is lower on Libertalia than at the, end of the, than at the beginning of the game or the beginning of the round. 
That said, typically at the end of the round, you have more resources to spend. And so that gives you a little bit of flexibility despite the tightness of, of the end of the round. So I think having uh, ways to mitigate tightness in games with decision, waiting decision spaces can make for really juicy decisions at the end of the round or the end of the game. In Scythe, Scythe has a strong sense of goal completion where one of the main things you're doing inside are trying to complete kind of sets of goals. For example, you're trying to have four mechs. If you have four mechs, you gain a star, you gain a glory, and that's worth some points at the end of the game. But once you've put, once you've created uh, or deployed four mechs, you can't deploy any more mechs. You've completed that goal. You don't even have any other mechs available to you. And so it has this, uh, as the game proceeds, even though your access to things on the map has probably increased as you've expanded your, your empire on the board of Scythe, um, the goals that you're pursuing are fewer, so they become more and more focused. Uh, you start off with a broad decision space. You can choose any of these games, any of these goals to complete. It's a little sandboxing in that way. But by the end of the round, you know, okay, I have a few buildings. I need to make one more building to complete that goal. And then maybe you have one other goal that you've been working on. You want to complete that goal as well. In Tapestry, Tapestry has a bunch of different uh, examples of ways that you have a waning decision space. Your capital city starts off completely empty, but as you fill it with buildings, your, your decision space as to where you can place buildings in the capital city becomes less and less. Um, and then also in Tapestry, as you are moving up on the action tracks, on the advancement tracks, uh, the costs get higher. And so your decision, your, your ability to pay for certain actions becomes less and less. Whereas to the point that in the final few rounds of Tapestry, typically you have far fewer actions than you did kind of in the middle of the game when you have a ton, even though you have more resources going into the last round because the actions are more expensive then. And also you've probably completed at least one of those tracks. And so, whereas early in the game, you could advance on any of the four tracks. By the end of the game, you probably only have one or two tracks that you can actually advance on. Uh, based on the cost and based on whether or not you've you've completed those tracks. In Wingspan, Wingspan does something a little, uh, what I think is very interesting, in that you start off with eight actions per round, but you lose an action each round to the point where in the final round, you only have five actions. The reason we did this is because a Wingspan is an engine building game and your turns get longer and much more powerful as you play Wingspan uh, over, the, over the course of the game. So at the beginning of the game, you have no cards in a card row in Wingspan, but by the end of the game, you're activating, when you activate a row of cards, there's a bunch of cards there and you're, and you're activating a bunch of those abilities as you move down that row. And so you have fewer actions, fewer, uh, fewer uh, options of what you can, um, how many actions you can actually take. And also you've probably built up certain rows to the point that um, certain rows are just more appealing than other rows. And so uh, by the end of the game, you're like, why would I activate my forest? I have nothing in the forest or hardly anything, but my wetland row is, is huge. That's clearly the one that I need to activate here at the end of the game. And you have fewer spaces to play birds at the end of the game as well. Last, Libertalia. Libertalia has what I call kind of a, a cyclical uh, decision space in that you start off with a, a hand of six cards. This is Libertalia Winds of Galecrest. You start off with a hand of six cards and you are playing those characters during the round to the point that at the, by the end of the, each round, you only have a few cards in hand. So you have fewer options to choose from. Um, and then you replenish your hand at the, at the beginning of the next round. So your hand gets bigger again throughout the game, but it also gets smaller throughout each round. Um, and so that's that's just inherently a, a waning decision space. But I think that works really well in Libertalia because 
it means that the cards that you've saved up for the end of the round, there's there's more meaning behind them. You have been the one to decide which of those cards that you've saved for that end of the round, um, for that end of the round play, and also which cards you're going to carry over to the next round. So you have this this sense of deviousness, a little bit of of uh, of uh, being mischievous because you have been saving these cards for the, the exact right moment. You get to feel clever about which cards that you've saved. I've already talked long enough. Let me jump into my top ten here. I'll try to keep it pretty brief. At number ten, I have time stories. So Time Stories is a cooperative game where you're going on these fantastical or sci-fi runs into a certain period of time um, to typically accomplish some goal or, or one of multiple goals. Some, oftentimes it's solving a mystery. You don't know exactly what you're going for. You definitely don't know what you're going to see during that run. And Time Stories is kind of a... Uh, the, the winning decision space comes from information. As you do the first or second run, uh, because eventually in the first run you run out of time and you have to go back in and do it again, but you'll probably take a different path this time. Each time you do a run, you learn what is important and what isn't important in time stories. And so you have this waning decision space based on information that you've learned from previous runs. So by the time you've done, you've, you launch into the third run, of a game of time stories, you know pretty exactly what you need to do and and uh, and where to go and what to get um, to accomplish that goal. And you have a lot of stuff that you can ignore at that point. And I think some of the later scenarios of time stories did a good job of giving you some um, some sense of not just information progression, but also actual progression. Where like maybe a a character that you've encountered in one in a previous run, you already have a relationship with that character when you do a future run, and so you don't have to establish that relationship again. You, you already know that character. You don't need to repeat it. Sometimes there are items that carry over. Sometimes there are locations that carry over. So I think having a little bit of progression combined with that sense of focused uh, information leads to a really nice waning decision space in time stories. At number nine, I have Scotland Yard. So Scotland Yard is a one versus many game where you have a character who is secretly running around a map. You don't know where they are. They do pop up at different times, but you're trying to basically just land on the space where that that uh, that character is, Mr. or Mrs. X, this character. And at, at the beginning of the game, it's a wide open decision space. You have no idea where they are. You are looking for them and they'll pop up pretty early, but at the very beginning, the first few turns, you're really moving around blind. You're kind of positioning yourself based on where uh, Mr. or Mrs. X might pop up. Uh, but late in the game, you probably have it narrowed down to a very, very small area as to where you think they are. And so uh, it, it, the game gets tighter and tighter as you as you, um, as you you kind of close in on Mr. and Mrs. X. And also, if you last long enough as the detective's trying to, to find uh, the, the bad guy in this game, um, you have fewer and fewer tokens that you can use to actually move around the city. Because at the beginning of the game, you have a bunch of taxi, bus, and metro tokens. But as you use those tokens, they're gone. They actually go to, to Mr. X. You lose those tokens and you no longer have them to spend. So by, at the end of the game, you might only have a few tokens left and a few specific tokens left. And you have to use only those tokens to try to close in on the final location of Mr. Mrs. X. I love the waiting decision space in Scotland Yard. Next up, we have On Tour. So I wanted to, definitely wanted to include, other than uh, Rolling Realms, one roll and write game. And I think On Tour is a great example of this. There are lots of roll and write games where, uh, where you have this waning decision space. In On Tour, you are writing down numbers on a map of the U.S. Let's see if I can open the box and show you one here. Um, yeah, here's one. So you have this map of the U.S. And you are writing down some numbers based on regions 
which is based on a card that is revealed, and numbers based on two dice that are rolled. So if I roll a 1 and an 8, I need to write down either an 81 or, or an 18. Um, and, uh, and I actually need to write down both, both numbers somewhere on the map based on different regions. So at the beginning of the game, this board is wide open. But as you play, uh, more and more of these spots be fill, can become filled up with numbers. And you're trying to create a sequential or an ascending order of, uh, of numbers throughout the U.S. that can a uh, string that can go as long as possible. So if I can connect like 18 different um, cities that, that have ascending numbers, um, that's really, really great. And so you're trying to do that in this game. But more and more of these spaces are being covered up as you play. You've written down these numbers to the point that at the end of the game, you have very few options. Um, but that's where I think the cleverness of this game comes in. It gets tighter as you play, but it means that a big part of the game is giving yourself uh, exit plans, lots of backup options. So if I write down like an 88 right here in the middle, I need a couple different ways to get back to that 88 with a lower number or a higher number. And so I really like the kind of the, the risk management and risk mitigation process uh, of on tour early in the game. Those numbers that you write early on matter quite a bit so that you have these backup ways to get around to them with, uh, with other sequential or ascending numbers. So that's, yeah, on tour at number eight. At number seven, I have a little bit of a cheat here. I have two games that I'm talking about at the same time, and those are code names and Mysterium Park. So these are both deduction games where you are trying to uh, figure out uh, the solution, the, the figure out from some clues that you are being given, which cards in Mysterium Park uh, lead to the um, the innocent people in the game, so not the murder suspects. And in code names, you're trying to lead towards specific words that the person is giving you clues about. And both have a waning decision space throughout each round. You have different cards and you have two different sets of cards in, in Mysterium Park that you're going through. And as, if I've guessed a card um, and guessed incorrectly, then I know I can't guess that one again. My my range of options that I can choose from have has d diminished, has gotten lower. Same with code names. If I guess incorrectly or if the other team has guessed some um, correctly or, or, or incorrectly some words, then I know that those aren't words that I need to choose from anymore or, or think about. Uh, I think deduction games, I think uh, waning decision spaces work really, really well in deduction games like Mysterium Park and in code names. And number six is Terra Mystica, a game that I mentioned often on my list, but I wanted to include it here because in Terra Mystica, there are several different options, uh, uh, ways that it uses waning decision space. One is in Terra Mystica, when you have completed some of the bigger buildings, when you pulled the bigger buildings off your player mat and put them on the map itself, uh, that's it. Those buildings aren't going anywhere anymore. You, Unlike the other buildings in Terra Mystica where you kind of put them down and, and upgraded them, put them back and forth on your player mat to the map, uh, the bigger buildings are there permanently. So once you complete one of those goals, one of those bigger buildings, um, it's complete. You don't have to go after it anymore. You know that's complete. Also in Terra Mystica, um, but throughout the game, there are uh, you're, you're kind of building out your own little empire. And one of the the key things the game's the game asks you to do is to complete cities. So to complete a cluster of buildings, a cluster of, of territories where the buildings are worth at around seven, at least seven. Um, there's a way around that. You, there's a token that lets you do a value of six instead, but generally the number is seven. And so the game is kind of saying you don't need a bit a city that is bigger than seven. Um, and so once you've done that, once you've completed a city of that size, you typically look out to other areas of the board to complete other cities or to, to grow other cities. And so it has this strong sense of waning decision space that comes from um, 
from, from the size of your, of your cities, of completing either these big buildings or these cities, the sense of completion. I've completed this thing. I don't need to think about that anymore. I don't need to worry about this area of the board. I need to focus on this other area of the board now. Uh, so I really like that in Terra Mystica. I don't know if it completely fits all that well into this category, but I, I do, as I play Terra Mystica, I know that um, it starts off with a wide open range of decisions. And throughout the game, I'm able to plan more and more about what I need to do on my next few turns because there's only a few things that I really need to do, can do, or should do based on uh, the current state of the game. So that's Terra Mystica at number six. And number five, I have another, another little cheat here. I'm going to mention Patchwork and Blockus. Both of these are polyomino games where the, the you have a limited space as to where you can place tiles in these games. In Patchwork, you're, kind of, you're filling up your own personal quilt. Here's the back of the box here. You're filling up your own personal quilt with polyomino, polyomino tiles, and you're selecting those tiles, you can see here, from this big circle of tiles that you put out at the beginning of the game. It's perfect information. You know exactly what's out there. You can choose from only the next three tiles on your turn, and you move a kind of a token around to show which tiles are available to the next player. Um, and so in, in two ways, there's waning decision space here. Brendan mentioned this one. I thought it was a great pick because you have this waning decision space as to where you can put tiles on your, your, your quilt. Um, fewer spaces are available and there are fewer types of tokens um, that are available or types of tiles that are available in this circular spread of tiles on the board. So you know, here's a certain spot where I need to place this very specific tile. I can see where that tile is on the table. Um, I need to get that tile. Uh, before the other player does. Blockus is a little bit of the opposite of patchwork, but it is also a limited space. In Blockus, it is a shared, it's this big shared board that you're, that you're sharing with the other players, and you're placing polyomino tiles on that board so that they touch just on the corners of your own tiles. And as that board, at the beginning of the game, it's very easy to place any tile that you want on that board. But by the end of the game, that board gets really, really tight. It becomes very, very difficult. Um, and the whole puzzle of the game is trying to last longer than the other players to place um, your to, to continue to be able to place your tiles on that board when other players cannot. Uh, you're trying to get rid of as many of the little little squares as possible. And so even though two different styles of game, polyomino games, this one you're working on your own quilt and block as you are sharing a board with the other players and trying to last as long as possible. But both have this constrained and restrained decision space the longer that you last in the game. And number four, I have Raiders of the North Sea. Um, I just played this again, uh, I think for maybe the fifth time this past weekend. Um, and had a blast with it. And I was reminded that it's one of these games where you populate the board with a bunch of stuff at the beginning of the game. In this case, you're populating all the different spaces that you might go raiding uh, with little tokens. And as you go raid those spaces, you uh, pull those tokens, you gain those tokens, you pull them off the board. And so as the longer you play the game, the more raids that you and other players have gone on, the fewer spaces are available to raid. Um, and so it creates this, again, a waning decision space where you have, at the beginning of the game, it's wide open. You can choose anything. There are so many different places where you can raid. Um, you need to build up to be able to raid, but there's so many spaces where you can raid. But by the end of the game, there are very few spaces that you can raid. So you know exactly, okay, these are the spaces. These are the resources that I need to go to, to raid there. These are how many... Um, uh, PowerPoints, whatever the, the, the fighting resource is, the, the military resource, this is how many I need to get points at those spaces. So that's Raiders of the North Sea. And I think that, that tag, ties into a whole category of games where you're populating the board with a bunch of stuff at the beginning of the game, but a lot of the tension from the game comes from being the player to get to the best piles before the other players. Number three, we have 
Cat in the Box, a recent favorite of mine. Cat in the Box has a cyclical decision space, kind of a round-based decision space. In Cat in the Box, you have a hand of cards, uh, numbered cards, but they don't have suits on them. Um, and so as you play a card, you declare what suit it is. So if I play a three, I can say, okay, this is a blue three. Or I can say, uh, if, I'm, if you've played a blue three, I can say, you know, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have any blue cards left anymore. This is actually, this is a red three um, or red four. And the way that you remember that in in, within each round is that there's a board and cat in the box. You can see the little board here in the back of the box. There's a board in the box where you put a token, one of your little player tokens, on this board to indicate that in this round, the blue three and the red three have been played. Uh, the reason that matters is that there are four colors on this board, four suits on this board, but there are five of each card in the game. So if I'm playing a game, as I mentioned these threes, there are five threes in the game. And so it means that at a certain point in the game, I'm going to have a three, or a player is going to have a three in their card that they cannot play. And depending on other choices they made throughout that round, color suits that they said they do or do not have, um, there comes a point at the end of each round, typically, where a player causes a paradox, which means that it gets around to them. They have cards in hand, they have numbers, but based on what other players and what, what cards they play during the round, they cannot make a play. So a big part of Hemp Box is avoiding being the player to cause a paradox. You lose points if you do that, instead of gaining points for each trick that you've won. And so within each round, it gets tighter and tighter. The tension gets higher and higher as you realize what you can or cannot play anymore. And uh, it's definitely this waning decision space over the course of each round as to what you can or cannot play. And it's really tight. The, the, the tension provided by that, but by being the player who does not cause a paradox is wonderful in Cat in the Box. And number two, uh, my, my final two games are, are games where you're completing something. And the first one is role player. In role player, you are building a D&D style character on a mat here. You have a bunch of different goals you're trying to complete based on numbers and, and colors. And over the course of the round, you are filling up your mat guaranteed with a total of 18 dice. That is when the game ends. All players are kind of doing this at the same pace. So all players will place their 18th die at the same time. As you complete the rows, in role player, you or as you you complete them, you get a little bonus. But as you even put a die in a row, you get a, a benefit specific to that row. Um, but over the course of the game, you have more and more rows that are filled up, some columns that are filled up too. You have fewer and fewer places where you can place dice over the course of the round in role player. And so literally, like the number of places that you can do things and the number of benefits you can gain becomes less and less as you play. And uh, I, I love this puzzle. I love how the puzzle gets tighter and tighter each round. It starts off wide open, but it gets really tight by the, by the end of the game of role player. Um, and I just love the game in general. But yeah, it has a, a great waning decision space in terms of what you're completing on your character mat in role player. The final game is a little bit different than that, but similar in that you have your own mat and you're trying to complete it, and that is Planet Unknown. And Planet Unknown is a polyomino game where you're filling up a planet with polyomino tiles that you're simultaneously drafting with other players, these Tetris-shaped tiles. And uh, again, it has this strong sense of completion in multiple ways. One, the end game is triggered when a player cannot place a tile on their map anymore. But also, uh, as you complete rows and columns on your planet, uh, that's the whole puzzle of the game. How can you complete these rows and columns? You uh, get points for doing so. And so there's this waning decision space of places where you're actually able to place your tiles on your board so that you can score those rows and columns. 
And also, and whenever you place a tile in, um, in Planet Unknown, you will move up two different tracks because every tile has two different colors on it. You're moving up two different tracks on, uh, on your little corporation map. And as the game moves forward, some of those tracks become less relevant. Like if you haven't moved up on a track, it doesn't really behoove you to move up on that track. Whereas other tracks might be completed. And so it also doesn't benefit you to move up on those tracks. And so as the game moves forward, you kind of you typically pick a few tracks to focus on and those become the tiles that you really want to place, the, t the tracks that you want to move up on. Um, and you have fewer decisions at the end of the game as to where you can place tiles and which tracks are even uh, make sense for you to advance on. So yeah, Planet Unknown is going to be my top pick for games with waning decision spaces. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this special topic, especially if you've also listened to the podcast episode about it. I think Jake and Brennan talk really eloquently about how really cool this decision space is of, of waning decision spaces in games. But yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the games that I mentioned here, the games they mentioned, or your favorite game where uh, the game starts off wide open, or a game it could even start off fairly, fairly narrow and they get really big, and then by the end of the game, the decision spaces get really narrow and tight and tense. Let me know what your top picks are for this category in the comments below. Thanks.